Today on Bob and Yert Live, we have a lot to get to. I want to go over an interaction I had with a liberal quasi-Christian, air quotes around Christian, you'll see why later. I also want to correct the record about something I said about AOC, actually. And then, did God lie to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17? We'll be handling that objection. All of that and more right here on Bob and Yert Live. Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dominic Enyart. Uh, I got a bit of a new setup here at the studio. We used to have this big microphone arm that you're able to move it around, but I changed it up to a nice little microphone stand, and uh, I'm liking the change. You know, new year, new microphone stand. Um, so yesterday I decided to talk about just some random Bible topics. And I, I had a lot of fun with that. And I, I think I'm going to continue with that theme for today. But before I do so, yesterday after the show, I spoke with a liberal Christian, and I'm putting air quotes around the Christian there just because it's a, it's a little bit shaky in my mind, her being a Christian. And obviously, I don't think you have to be a conservative to be saved. It's not of works, nor of foreign policy ideas, nor nor of particular beliefs about taxes or even some moral issues that will get you to heaven. In the conversation of, you know, what must I do to be saved, those topics are largely irrelevant. Romans 10, 9, and 10 teaches us exactly how to be saved. That says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And this is considered the best evangelical passage by a lot of Christians. And yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty solid. You know, yeah, Paul was a pretty good author. I, I, I must admit, and his, and God inspiring him uh, definitely helps. A good way you can remember this passage, by the way, is Romans TNT, like an explosion, TNT 10, nine and 10. But so this clearly says what you have to be saved. Yeah. I'm throwing air quotes around this liberal Christian here. And obviously, the Bible never says, thou must be a conservative to be saved. It doesn't. So I don't think this liberal I was talking to was necessarily not a Christian because she was a liberal. But here is what scares me. We see this from a lot of what are called progressive Christians. We see that they do not take the Bible and conform their lives to it. Rather, they take scripture and twist it and conform that to their lives to get what I like to call fire insurance. They want to be saved from hell, which that's a healthy desire. It is good to not want to go to hell. But they don't care so much about the side of getting to know and love God. It's more about fire insurance. So my concern is that these progressive Christians, if they aren't conforming their lives to the rest of the Bible, then why should I trust that they are conforming to Romans 10, 9, and 10? And I'm not saying you can't, as a liberal, be a Christian. 
being inconsistent is a pretty consistent strength of theirs, I must I must say. But so it's not out of the realm of possibilities. But if I'm talking to someone and I want them to go to heaven and I want them to love God, I'm going to assume that they're not saved. I'm going to try and present the gospel to them as if they rejected Christ. I rather risk offending a Christian and being wrong about their salvation than not offend them and assume they're saved and then be wrong about that. You know, people will say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so people can do a good job of pretending they love Christ, but not actually loving him. And these liberal Christians who don't conform their lives to the Bible then claim to be Christian. I'm going to err on the side of caution here and warn them rather than think, you know, oh, it's all good and dandy. In Matthew chapter 7, God says that by their fruits, you shall know them. And so I want to talk about this interaction I had with this liberal quasi-Christian. But before doing so, I was talking yesterday about that passage with a good friend of mine. Also from Matthew 7, the Lord, Lord passage. So Matthew 7, Jesus says, Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many mighty wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Interesting there, that last point, you who practice lawlessness. Reminds me of our liberal quasi-unknown Christian friends. But my friend was asking, wouldn't it be sad if you thought you had a good relationship with God and then you die and you find out you're going to hell? And we, we talked about that for a bit and it was a lot of fun. And the conclusion I've come to on that point is that there won't be people who want to love God, but then they are rejected. The people who go to hell are going because they want to go to hell. You know, I have plenty of issues with Billy Graham, but he said that those who go to hell go by their own free choice. And I thought that was such a powerful point. The people who go to hell are going because they want to go to hell. And the people who Jesus is talking about here, they don't love God. And they know that deep down in their heart of hearts, they know that they love God. They might have spent their entire lives lying to others, pretending to love God. They might have even been preachers, you know, who knew God's word well, but they did not love him and they lied. Perhaps to others, perhaps even to themselves on the surface, at least. And then they die and then they want to lie to God. It's their nature. They've been lying their entire lives. Why stop now? So they lie to God and they try and trick him as they spent so long tricking man. But guess what? You can't trick God. And as much as they might want to, they are unable to manipulate him and get the better of him. And as much as it might look like it, I don't even believe that they want to spend eternity with him. They simply want to mock him because they hate him. And so what happens? They say, Lord, Lord. But guess what? They end up going to hell. And when they're in hell, they can mock and hate God for the rest of eternity. And in reality, I believe they prefer that 
to being in God's presence because I, I think being in God's presence would be much more miserable for them. So in one sense, God rejecting these people who say, Lord, Lord, is an act of mercy, not just an act of judgment. But So that brings us back to this interaction I had with this progressive liberal Christian. Progressive Christians like to teach their own new version of morality. But as C.S. Lewis so brilliantly points out, good moral teachers never seek to introduce new morality. Rather, they bring us back time and time again to the old underlying morality that we so desperately try to forget. And (laughs) C.S. Lewis said it pretty bluntly here. I, I like it, this line. People who try to introduce new moralities are quacks. And yeah, this is pretty solid. I posted that on my Twitter, and one of our listeners added, Indeed, morality is absolute. And that guy, he's a friend of mine, and I I love his username. He commented that on my Twitter. By the way, follow me on Twitter, at Dominic Enyart. But his username is Judge Rightly, and that's perfect. Cool guy. Josh, he's a truck driver. Cool guy. Uh, But yeah, these progressive Christians, to be blunt, they're quacks. And I'm talking to this quasi-Christian, and I said liberals just don't conform their lives to the scriptures. And she said, oh, of course we do. And I said, yet you disagree with verses like Leviticus 20.13 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Keep in mind, I've never met this person before in my life. I just know that she's a liberal and calls herself a Christian. That's all I know about her. But I said, knowing 100% that I was correct, you disagree with these verses. And see, if you have the slightest bit of intuition, and Bob Enyart was your father, that's helpful, uh, these things are they are easy to figure out, right? And she responded and said, well, I don't think it's up to us to judge, and only God will judge because we don't have the intelligence to judge. That's what she said. We're not smart enough. And well, <laughs> she... She's almost got a point there. I have to admit, she's almost got a point. Not quite, but but she's she's close. And we are really bad at judging the church, at least. I mean, atheists, atheists are great at judging. They hate us. They really hate us. And they really hate God, especially. So they're really good at judging. But Christians, especially like this gal here, they say we shouldn't judge. So, you know, fair enough. We're bad at it. But I I told her, Paul says in that same chapter, don't you know that we're going to judge the world? We're even going to judge the angels. And you guys are kind of really bad at judging, so you better start judging right now so you have the practice to judge when we really need it. And that's 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 5, if you want to fact check me. So start judging. And check out this 1 Corinthians 6. It's it's important to read. Good chapter. This Christian is what we call here at kgov.com a nicer-than-God Christian. And my dad wrote an article about people like this. You can read that at kgov.com slash nice or get our Bible study. Christians are nicer than God, or at least they try to be. But the article is a good place to start if you are curious on that front. And, but... You know, we do have a leg up on the atheists when it comes to judging in that we have a guide that teaches us how to judge. We don't have to just come up with this stuff and we don't need a new morality. We have the old one. And now that I think about it, maybe that's why they're so afraid of judging 
is because they think we have to come up with our own new morality. But lucky us, it's all right there in the book. And so after that, she told me something snarky about why I was wrong. And I said, hey, I hope you have a great day, but I have to go. And then as I was leaving, she said, sorry, I don't have time to judge people when I could be spreading God's love and tolerance. And so she doesn't have the time to obey the the Apostle Paul from God sent to the Gentiles. And so that was was pretty cringe. Um, Also, what Bible, I wonder, is this gal using that she thinks God is a God of tolerance? Last I checked, he flooded the world to kill everyone because they were so evil. And you think that he went to counseling between the Old and New Testament, so he's nicer now? Well, when people hate him and they go for their judgment, guess what God does? He sends them to a lake of fire for the rest of eternity. Does that sound like a God of tolerance to you? No, and I thank God that he doesn't tolerate sin. I praise him for that because he is a God of justice. And remember that you don't tolerate things that are good. You enjoy things that are good. One would tolerate something if she dislikes it. You don't tolerate things that you like and that you think are fun and that you enjoy. So even if she thinks that God is a God of tolerance and he tolerates sin, she's still admitting that those things are bad. So she can't she can't get away from it either way she goes. So she's at best a weak Christian. And at worst, she's not a Christian, but she pretends to be one so she can make cute Instagram posts with a morning routine of coffee and Bible time or whatever. And so she's extended my streak of liberal Christians who are unwilling to conform their lives to the Bible. I mean, she said that she did conform her life to the Bible and that conservative and that conservatives did not. And so I asked her, I said, "Okay, so what verses don't I conform to in my life? And as I asked her that, I thought she might make a good point. You know, she might. So I should be open to hearing what others say. Very often people outside yourself, especially when they're a little bit angry at you, can see your flaws a lot more clearly than you can. And she just said, I I don't know. Which, you know, I was pretty happy with that. Uh, It was a little heated there towards the end. So If anyone could think of a flaw, which I know I have many, it would be her. Yet she didn't say any, so I I was glad about that. But I told her, you've rejected every verse I've brought up, and you're unwilling to bring up any verses of your own. And of course, she didn't care. And that's because liberal Christians tend to not conform themselves to the Bible. Because in my experience, at least, they don't care about the Bible. And I'm not saying that conservatives are beyond this. Of course, we constantly fail to conform our lives to to the Bible. And in reality, we do need to check ourselves more than we check others. Because as Solzhenitsyn said, and I don't have the quote in front of me here, but he essentially said that if only it were necessary to take the evil people who are off at a distance and cut them off, and kill them and destroy them from the world. But sadly, the line that separates good and evil runs through every individual human heart. And in order to destroy evil, every person must be willing to kill part of himself, which that's brilliant. And so, you know, it's not always just about checking other people. It's about checking yourself and asking God, Lord, search my heart. Know know any evil way in me that I might be able to, through your grace, overcome that wickedness.
A good test, if you're wondering, is you can ask yourself, what have I given up to better conform myself to God? What have I given up to have a better relationship with Christ? And that's a good test. It's a good exercise to run through, uh, you know, every, every now and then. Um, okay, how much time do I have left? I went on a giant tangent here. I haven't even started my main topic. We are about, what, 20 minutes in almost? Um, so I thought that was a fun interaction. Um, you know, I pray that she conforms her life better to scriptures, and if not, if she's not saved, then I pray that she comes to know Christ. You know, my brother was listening to, to my show, and on Christmas we were actually talking about this, and... A few weeks back, so I, I figure this would be a good time to correct the record as to what I believe. He was criticizing me a little bit, not completely unwarranted, because I was making fun of AOC, as I do. And to make fun of her, I played a clip of her saying that we need to free all criminals from jail. And I said that we shouldn't let criminals go scot-free. And my brother, Nate, he pointed out to me that the biblical form of government does not include jail. Jail is not one of the punishments that is a biblical punishment for criminals. And he was right about that. Yet here I am making fun of AOC for saying something that's the closest thing that she's ever said to something that's actually biblical. So I would like to clarify that point. I think that AOC is right that we should not have jails. But I think she is wrong that we should just let violent criminals go scot-free. The official position over here at kgov.com that the biblical punishments for crimes are restitution, corporal punishment, and capital punishment, not jail. So Nate, who Nate, by the way, thinks that AOC is very dumb as well. Nate, thank you for correcting me on that point. But I do still think that she is very dumb for wanting criminals to not be punished in any form whatsoever. All right. Now, before I get into my main topic, today's show is sponsored by Paul G from Eagle, Colorado. Paul left a really nice note, and he said the team here is doing a good job in Bob's absence. And that that is really so encouraging. I hate to say it, but that note, honestly, probably was equally encouraging just to the sponsorship itself. Those little points of encouragement, I know it certainly helps all of us here to be encouraged and to want to keep going and keep fighting. So, Paul, thanks for that, and thank you for sponsoring today's show. What a blessing. If you'd like to sponsor a show, either a full show, half show, or a third of a show, whatever it is you can do, go to kgov.com slash sponsor. Perhaps you could purchase our entire network and keep us on air for free. Who knows? That'd be, <laughs> uh, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, whatever you can do, though, we are so out of this world thankful. And Paul, to you, thank you especially today. Um, so got about 10, 10 minutes left here. My brother, Michael and I, we take turns leading a weekly Bible study at our church, Agape Kingdom Fellowship. And we're in the book of Joshua. Join us tonight. Actually, Michael is leading tonight, Agape Kingdom Fellowship, 7 p.m. Today is Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. But so we're going through the book of Joshua. And right now, I, I believe we're in Joshua chapter 15, but Joshua chapter five was actually my favorite chapter that we've gone through so far in the book. I want to spend the last while on the show talking about this. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from Joshua chapter five. 
At the time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And that's really gross, a hill of foreskins. Uh, But so what do we have? We have God and he tells Israel to circumcise. But these are the people of the circumcision. Why would they need to be circumcised? Well, the Bible is pretty nice when you have questions, it has answers. In this case, it answers immediately afterwards. So our question is, why do they need to be circumcised? Now reading from Joshua chapter 5 again, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed. So that's That's the adults, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And by the way, this is shocking that they were not circumcised on the way, because it was Moses who was the leader of the people of Israel at the time. And Moses, if you recall back in the book of Exodus, he was almost killed by God for not having circumcised his own son. So this isn't something that Moses would have easily forgotten. This was a rejection of circumcision by the people of Israel. And so here in Joshua, we see the solution to a problem created back in Exodus when they left and didn't circumcise on the way. So And this raises up a important question. Why was God willing to work with Israel even though they were uncircumcised? I'd like to take a moment here to go back to Genesis chapter 17, and this will illustrate why this is such a problem for us as Bible students today. God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, a really important covenant. In my dad's life work, The Plot, he points to Genesis 17 as one of the seven most crucial chapters for understanding the plot of the Bible. So this is important for the rest of scripture, but for the study in Joshua right now I'm focusing on. So God says, As he's making a covenant with Abraham, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So this is a covenant essentially with Israel, Abraham and his descendants after him. And notice here that this is a, quote, everlasting covenant. The verse immediately following says, and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So what's God saying? God says, if you become uncircumcised, You will be cut off. That's intense. Yet here in Exodus, the people 
wandered around for 40 years and God didn't cut them off. He gave them manna and he let their next generation enter the promised land. So critics of the Bible here can make a case saying God isn't a man of his word. God isn't a God of his word. And we have to know how to deal with that. So what's going on? Well, in a sense, God is keeping his covenant by letting that generation die in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Yet after that generation died, he had a new generation enter the promised land and become circumcised, and that is restoring the covenant that he had made with Abraham. This way, he could bring them into the promised land, and God's chosen people would be redeemed. So I I want to simplify this and boil this down a little bit more. And I'm going to boil this down in this story of the Old Testament here into four main points. So point number one, God works with a circumcised people. Point two, the circumcised people reject him. Point three, God works with an uncircumcised people instead. Point four, God redeemed the uncircumcised people by having them become circumcised. And now if you're a vigorous student of the Bible, especially if you know Bob Benyard's teachings, this might sound vaguely familiar. And that's because this story is God foreshadowing something that would very likely happen. And no, this is not a prophecy, not a prediction, but foreshadowing of something that was very likely to happen. There's no prophetic language anywhere in this passage, but this is foreshadowing. Later, in the New Testament, as detailed in Romans 11, God cuts off Israel and starts working with the uncircumcised, the Gentiles in this case. So here is the New Testament equivalence simplified, and I want to boil this down into four points again. See if this sounds familiar. Point one, God works with a circumcised people. See John 4.22 and Matthew 15.24. Point two, and check out Romans 11 for the rest of this, the circumcised people reject him. Point three, God works with an uncircumcised people instead, the Gentiles. Point four, God promises redemption to the people of the circumcision. So when we see this story from back in Joshua and Exodus, This wasn't God lying. God was preparing for something that would likely happen. And so right now, where we are today in 2022, we are waiting for Israel to be redeemed. And eventually they will be grafted back in. And just like how we saw God cut off his people back then and then redeem them once before, so too can we have faith that Israel will be grafted back in and amen to that. So this isn't a story of God having a bad memory or being a liar, as the critics may say in their attempt to undermine our faith. Rather, this strengthens our belief that God is a redeemer and he will be true to his word as he always is, and he will redeem his people, Israel, just as he did once before. And this is another one of those things. You know how yesterday I was talking about how the news is so stale, yet the Bible is so fresh and alive, and there's always something new to it. You could read through this a hundred times over and not see that. And then on the hundred and first time, you notice that there's always something new and something just so rich and interesting about the Bible. And to me, that's one of the greatest pieces of evidence 
that the Bible is divinely inspired by God because regardless of all of our great authors today, we never have anything this rich and dense in information that's just inexhaustible. It is really a beautiful thing. Wow, that wow, that's incredible. I think I uh, that's going to about do it for for me here today. I want to remind you. I mentioned yesterday that this Thursday I'm going to fast, and this was a challenge that Will Duffy, our pastor at Agape Kingdom Fellowship, presented to the congregation, and I want to pass this challenge on to you guys to go for a 24-hour religious fast sometime this week, and I plan on doing that starting tonight after I eat dinner. I'm going to start my stopwatch and wait till it hits 24 hours before eating again and just drinking water. That's all That's all I'm going to do is just drinking water, nothing else. The purpose of this is to remind myself to uh, pray to God and to spend that time I would spend eating, spend that time reading my Bible instead. Should be a lot of fun. Join us here tomorrow for Theology Thursday and then Friday for Real Science Radio with Fred Williams and I believe Daniel Hedrick is joining. That should be a lot of fun. I got a chance to look at what they were talking about. Really, really exciting stuff. But until then, this is Dominic Enyart reminding you to do right and risk the consequences.